All right, you want to take out a copy of God's Word with me tonight and open it up to Genesis chapter 2. We're back in Genesis chapter 2 as we continue in our study of the Word of God and the book of Genesis. I want to do a little bit of a um, review beginning in 2 verse 8. Um, we're going to be 8 through, I think, 25 tonight. And um, I want to start in verse 8 and just do a quick review from the last time I preached. So let me just read verses 8 and 9 and kind of move on from there. Um, we're going to talk about the life in the garden, beginning in verse 8. It says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we went over this a couple weeks ago, but I just want to review a couple points and then move on to the next part of the text. We see within God's wonderful creation, God plants a garden in a place called Eden. We don't know exactly where that place is, and there's a good argument um, on the website Answers in Genesis from Ken Ham's ministry. It talks about the flood and how things shifted and moved. We don't have a way to know exactly where that place was. But we do know several things about the Garden of Eden that are important for today. In verses 8 and 9, we learn from Moses that the Garden of Eden contains several things. Uh, God placed Adam and then eventually Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God called, uh, caused trees to grow there that were beautiful, pleasing to the sight, um, and um, took care of all of their needs. So Adam and Eve in that garden had everything they needed, all the food they could want. It wasn't just enough to sustain them. The language that Moses used in this part of the text uh, indicates just an extravagant planting of trees and plants for Adam and Eve to take care of them. So it was a beautiful uh, buffet of food that God put in front of them. Moses, of course, in this part of the text mentions two very important trees, and we talked about those as well. So you have the tree of life. This is a tree that God put in the garden that he uh, sustained, that he empowered to give Adam and Eve um, everlasting life. And as they picked the tree, they would live forever. And then, of course, there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the, the tree of life was one which Adam and Eve could eat from freely. And the one thing that God told them they weren't allowed to do was what? Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll talk about that tree on uh, future weeks and what happened uh, when they ate from it. There was also a great river that arose from the subterranean freshwater ocean beneath the ground that watered the Garden of Eden. And then once it left the garden, it split into four great rivers. Uh, look at verse 10. It says, Now a river flowed out of, the Eden, out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Hivala, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good, and the bdellium and the onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is a Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. Uh, the name of the third river is the Tigris. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. We don't today know where those rivers were. Uh, we have some ideas of where they might be, but of course these rivers all existed before the flood. So when the flood occurred, it dramatically changed the contour of the earth. And so what we believe happened is um, 
that the, the Tigris and Euphrates, which currently exist today, um, they could be the same Tigris and Euphrates, but more than likely, uh, what they did was they just named those rivers after the, the rivers of the Tigris and Euphrates that existed before the flood. So we're not really sure where Eden was or where those rivers were. Uh, we do know that God put them there. We do know that God created them, and we do know that he used them for his good pleasure. So that brings us up now to uh, verse 15, and that's kind of where we begin today, where God creates Adam. So tonight we're going to talk about God creating Adam, God creating Eve, and God establishing the covenant of marriage. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So look at verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So first, God created Adam. Now, there's a little bit more detail in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, about this creation. It says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then God took Adam, and he put him in the Garden of Eden. Now, verse 15 contains three important things that I want to point out to you tonight. Number one. Moses, the author of Genesis, gives God the title of what? What does your text say there in verse 15? Lord God. That's right. You guys got it. Lord God. Now, this is an interesting title. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. Now, Yahweh is, of course, God's proper personal name. This is the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush event. Do you guys remember the burning bush when Moses was called by God to go back to Egypt and free the people? So let me just read the text from you for you. If you have a Bible, it's, it's in Exodus 3, 13 and 14. It says, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now that word Yahweh is a form of the word I am, of the, of the, the verb phrase I am. And so that's God's proper name. That's what he told Moses and the Israelites to call him. That's his name, Yahweh. Now what's interesting is he, Moses writes in that part of the text, Yahweh Elohim. And that's important for a lot of reasons. The first one is the word Elohim is a plural form of the word God. Now, they use that word Elohim to describe both the one true God of the universe, Yahweh, but also all of the pagan false gods. In Hebrew, they would use the word Elohim, and it could mean one God or many gods. And so Moses puts Yahweh Elohim, why do you suppose he did that? The reason is because uh, the book of Genesis existed, especially the creation story inside Genesis, existed among a plethora of other false creation stories. So Genesis, especially the first few chapters of Genesis, was an apologetic or a defense of the one true creation story. So it existed among a lot of others, um, but this was the one true one. So what Moses is trying to do, I believe, is he's trying to make this story stand out as the one true explanation for how everything came to be. So he slides in there 
Yahweh Elohim because the God that he writes about isn't just one of many gods that exist. It's the one true God. Now, if the word Yahweh is I am, take I am and put it in front of Elohim. What does it say? I am God. Do you get it? That's pretty cool. So every time someone who maybe reads five creation stories back in Moses' day, he's reading this, and the God Moses writes about, his name is I am God. Not just God like everybody else. I am God. And so Moses writes inside of this text, which is an apologetic designed to show people the one true God of the universe. Just two words are so, so important in verse 15. Moses writing about the Lord God. And, and also, the fact that he wrote Yahweh inside of that and not just Elohim, which if you move a little bit forward, um, you'll see that God is described just as Elohim. He, he all of a sudden starts to lose his personality uh, when Adam and Eve are listening to the serpent and sinning against him. But that's another uh, sermon for another time. Um, what, it, what it indicates and reminds the Israelites as they read this text in, in um, Genesis chapter 2 is that their God is a personal God, right? When they called him Yahweh, that was what God told them to call him. And so that signified a relationship. That signified a special relationship. And so he's writing in here to remind the Israelites this one true God that created everything. He's our God. Not just some nebulous God out there like everybody else believes. He's ours. We have a covenant relationship with him. And Moses writes all that into this text. And it all has very, very important meaning. The second thing I, that I want you to see in verse 14, is it says there, the verse says, that God put Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now, we lose some meaning in the English translation there. The word put, um, when I see that, I think God made Adam, right? And then I feel like, in looking at it from the English translation, like God picked him up and he kind of like set him in the garden, right? If you put your hammer away, where would you put it? If you put your hammer in your toolbox, where would you put your hammer? And then you pick it up, right? And you put it in the toolbox. That's what, that's what I see when I read that. Now, God did that. But the word, the Hebrew word that he used for the word put means rested. So look at it again. God rested Adam in the Garden of Eden. And that also is important to think about. Because that word that we translate as put is the same word that God used when he promises the Israelites that he will give them a land in Deuteronomy 3.20. It signifies more than just relocating someone from one place to another. God carefully designed the Garden of Eden for mankind to live in it. It was a lush paradise containing everything man could want or need. God was also present with man in the garden. Don't forget that. The way I think about this, this concept of how God brought Adam into the garden and rested him there. I thought about it while I was on vacation. 
So, how many of y'all like to go on vacation? Anybody? Vacations are awesome, right? You get to leave home, you get to try new food, you see new places, you get to rest. All that's awesome. But when you're away and you go on vacation for a while, there's nothing like coming home, right? What's your favorite part about coming home once you're, when you've been away for a while? Getting in your own bed. Sophie likes to see Hawkeye because Sophie could sleep anywhere. She could sleep on a concrete floor. She's fine. She likes to see the dog. Miss Gerilyn, I'm with you. Miss Jeannie, anybody else like favorite part, getting home, getting in the own bed? Why is it that we like our own bed? You feel safe? Is that also the place where you get the most rest? Right? You're in your house. You're with your stuff, like your home. Your things are around you. It's kind of your, your den, right? That's where you rest. And that's why we like it. That's what this word means. So God put Adam, rested him in the garden with the intention, this is your home. This is where you're going to find rest. It was, it's important for us to look at that because when we read something like that, it can, it can feel kind of impersonal, right? Like this impersonal God like made Adam out of the dirt. He picked him up and he like set him in the garden and kind of let him have his way and that was it. And that's not at all what happened. God very intimately created Adam and ultimately Eve, and we'll talk about her in a minute, but made Adam breathed life into him and then he picks him up and he puts him in this garden he rests him in this garden that he made for him he created it before he put him in there he had everything ready and he brought him in there and he just rested him in there that's the personal loving god that we serve third thing i want to see i want you to see in verse 15 is that god gave adam a job what was his job cultivate and keep the garden. That's right, Doug. And he did name the animals. Thank you. That was part of keeping the garden, but he did name the animals. Thank you, Karis. Adam's life in the garden was one that included purpose. When we interpret this part of the text using our modern understanding of rest, which I just spent a lot of time telling you guys about, we may misunderstand Adam's way of life. When I think of rest, I think of my bed. I think of Saturdays in the rocking chair with my legs up, right? Watching something on TV or reading a book, sipping coffee. But God didn't put Adam in the garden to lay around, to just hang out. He gave him a purpose. Now, what we see inside of this purpose is cultivate and keep the garden. And what we what we apply from that, or what we, we conclude from that, is that from the beginning, God intended for man to work. And that work is a good thing, not a curse for us. Work didn't just start after the fall. God put Adam in the garden and gave him the job of keeping the garden before the fall. So work is good, not just, we're not, we don't just have to work because of sin. We were designed to work by God. Matthews writes something interesting about this. He says, In the garden, God gives the man a purposeful existence that includes overseeing his environment. Work is a God-given assignment and not a cursed condition. It was 
it was sin that spoiled the pristine relationship between the man and his environment, making work a toilsome chore that became a requirement for mere existence. Mesopotamian accounts of human creation typically show how human beings were created for the purpose of work, but their human beings' work was to supply food for the selfish, lazy gods. That's not what God intended. Divine travail over the incessant labors is relieved by the creation of a human workforce. So that's what the false pagan uh, creation stories say, why we are created. In contrast, however, the biblical account portrays God as provider for man's needs, a part of which is honorable, meaningful labor of tilling the soil. God designed Adam to work, and his job at this point was to cultivate and keep the garden. When he used that word, that phrase, cultivate and keep the garden, what does that mean? Adam was to cultivate the garden, which means that God wanted him to till the soil, to care for the plants, to farm the garden. Now, if you've ever farmed a garden before, you probably understand what that means. Adam was created also to keep the garden. Adam was God's guardian for the Garden of Eden. God designed him to oversee it, to protect it, and to lead all within it to serve God. It's interesting to note that both Hebrew words translated cultivate and keep are words used throughout the Old Testament to describe the way God's people served God and obeyed his commands. So what that means is that God's, God's uh, design for Adam and mankind ultimately was to worship him through work, was to do work that's honorable, that pleases God, and when we do that, that's a form, an act of worship. So let me apply this in a couple ways. Adam's God-given purpose is also our purpose. Men and women were created to cultivate and keep the garden, what we now know as the earth. So he designed us to work. I think there's specific roles that men and women play and fulfill within the family unit. I talked about that before COVID on Wednesday nights when we were studying doctrine, and, and I can give you that information if you're interested in learning about it. So our work looks different based on our family composition and our ministry context. But no matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter how old you are, God designed us to work. Nursing home folks are designed and God desires for them to work. Now their work might look different than yours and mine. Their work might be to encourage people. Their work might be to do what they can to take care of themselves or to take care of other people. A mother who manages her home well is doing godly work that honors the Lord. The college student who studies hard in preparation for an exam is doing his or her work for that season of life, and that's honorable and good and honors the Lord. Our work is an act of worship. Did you ever think about that? That's what we learn from the Garden of Eden. God designed us to work, and when we do what God designed us to do, we fulfill a purpose and we give Him glory. Listen to Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove that what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. John Piper wrote something interesting about this text. He said, the goal of these two verses is that you find the way of life at work and at home that makes Christ look as valuable as he really is. That is what worship is. Worship is an expressing, a display of the worth of all that God is in us through Christ. So when your bodily life, so in your bodily life, what you do with your hands and your feet and your arms and your tongue and your eyes and your ears, when that is used to honor God, that's worship. It becomes a way of displaying the value and the worth of Christ. So that is the point of these verses. In all you do, do it for the glory of God. So in our work, which God created us to do, do the very best we can, because that's an act of worship. That's what God created us to do. When Adam tilled the ground and tended the garden, he fulfilled God's purpose for his life, and that was an act of worship. Likewise, when you work, when you do whatever God's called you to do with your life, whatever it is, you work and fulfill God's purpose for your life. And when you do that, it's an act of worship. God gave Adam his purpose and gave, and next he gives Adam a plan to fulfill that purpose. So he gave him his purpose. He set him in the garden to cultivate and keep the garden. That was his purpose. Next, he gives him a plan for that purpose. Look at verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So God gives Adam a command. Just as God has given everything in creation boundaries, God gives Adam boundaries, right? God gave other things boundaries. God separated the light from the darkness. God set a boundary between day and night. God separated the waters by an expanse. God gathered the waters on the earth into seas and separated and dry land appeared. Plants and animals reproduced according to their kinds. The sun and the moon governed the day and the night. And now God sets a boundary for Adam. Moses uses a specific word, ksiva. Ksiva, that's the Hebrew word. And that indicates that God issued a decree, a command. And obeying, or obeying this command is not optional. This is the same command, the same word that is used in the Pentateuch to describe the Ten Commandments, which we know are God's hard and fast law for the Israelites. It's the same word used. So this is a command from God. Adam would have known that it was a command from God and that it was not optional, that he would and was to obey it. God's command, which is actually very, very interesting, because when we read that text, we oftentimes focus on the negative part of the command, right? When you talk about uh, what happened in the Garden of Eden in the fall and the sin of Adam and Eve, we highlight that God said, you may not eat from what? Tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? That 
in my mind, that sticks out, right? If I were to remember one thing, that would probably be it. What we miss is the first part of the command, which is this amazing positive blessing from God, right? What does he say? From any tree in the garden you can eat. And there, we already know from our study of the previous verses that the Garden of Eden was lush. It was like a buffet of wonderful food. And aside from that, he had the tree of life. God says, you can eat from anything in this beautiful garden that I've given to you. Anything at all. Except one thing. So, really, this is a positive command. This is... This is really a blessing from God. Not not something that God gave hoping to offer up judgment. God, through what we see in this study, is intending to to bless Adam and then ultimately Eve. Like, look at all this stuff. You could eat from all this. Enjoy it. Tend it. Cultivate it. I have it here for you. Adam Adam can eat from, from any tree in the Garden of Eden. Except one. The negative part of the command states that Adam may not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now this is a special command for mankind alone because we're the only part of God's creation who crosses moral boundaries. We're the only ones that would understand that. So this is a special command for Adam and Eve. While this warning may seem harsh, God gives it to Adam and Eve out of compassion. What happens when Adam and Eve, what's God's promise, if Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? They're going to die. So when God tells them that, that in itself is also a blessing. If you eat from this, you're going to die. So just don't eat from this one tree. Eat from all the other trees. Enjoy thrive, reproduce. I'll be walking in, I'll be in your presence, I'll be here in this garden. And just don't eat from that tree. If you do decide to eat from that tree, you will die. I would say if someone told me, if you do something, you'll die, I would think that that warning is a blessing for me, right? We tell our kids that all the time, right? We teach them like, if you fall off this cliff, you would die from that, and our kids learn not to go close to the edge. So that's what God's doing. He's, it's a blessing for them. He's giving them a warning so that they can enjoy all that he made for them. Adam was not immortal. God perpetuated his life and, and ultimately Eve's life through eating of the fruit from the tree of life, which God sustained. Adam and Eve and their sin led to physical death because God removed them from the Garden of Eden and they no longer had access to the Tree of Life. Listen to Genesis 3, through 24. This is after the fall, after they sinned and ate from the Tree of Knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the Tree of Life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he he was taken. So he drove man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, 
he stationed the cherubim and flaming and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, how do we apply that to our lives? We're not in the Garden of Eden. That's been lost, thankfully, through Jesus and his sacrifice. That will be regained at the end of the age when God creates the new heaven and the new earth. It's going to be amazing. Tree of life will be there. But what does that have to do with you and I now, today, here? What we see in this is that obeying the Lord is good for us. Doing what God desires for us is good for us because when we obey God, we fulfill our purpose. We fulfill the reason for which God created us. It's what's best. Listen to some of these passages that talk about that. Proverbs 3, 1 and 2. It says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Proverbs 3.16, Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Proverbs 4.10, Hear my son and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. Proverbs 9.11, For by me your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. Proverbs 22.4, The reward of humility and fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you future and a hope. Our God designed you and I. He knew us in our mother's womb. He has a plan for us. He's given us His Word and a way to live. And God's way to live is always what's best for you and for me. Always. And, by the way, God desires good things for you. He has a plan for your life. When we follow His will and obey His commandments, that will be, in eternity, the very best possible way that we could live. All of these spiritual blessings blossom and are the fruit of our obedience to the Word of God. You can't both eat the forbidden fruit and receive God's spiritual blessings and eat from the tree of life. You don't get it both ways. You can't follow Jesus and live in sin and disobedience to the Word of God. It's impossible. You can't follow two things that are diametrically opposed and moving in two different directions. There are no exceptions, no special life circumstances that permit us to disobey the Word of God. God called us to obedience. Now, when we look at it, at times it can feel like the call to obedience to the Word of God and His commands feels like that negative commandment that he gave Adam in the garden, right? Sometimes when we read the Word, and when I've taught it to people, and sometimes when my heart is kind of hard, I feel like, ah, oh, the Word of God, it's, it's, so, it's so, you know, smothering, and I don't want to obey it, and I want to do my own thing, you know? Do you ever feel that way? When in reality, God telling us to obey His Word is the, the one kind of negative commandment 
disobeying the word leads to death. When wrapped inside of the word are so many good, positive blessings. Receiving salvation from Jesus and and the full life that comes from that. God's blessing on your life, eternal life in heaven. All of those things are the things that God said first to Adam that he says to us when he says to obey his word. Those are all the things that we receive. He says, I want to give you all these things. And you just need to steer away from sin and, and live a righteous life according to my word. And all these things will be added unto you. And too often we look at the negative part instead of looking at the abundant blessings that God has for us through Christ. When we obey His Word, we receive His spiritual blessings. And guess what, church? Those spiritual blessings are abundant and infinite. They're never going to run out. You can never get enough. And He's always got more to pour out on your life. And most of all, most important, He desires to pour those out on your life. All right, let's look at Eve. God continues to create and provide for Adam. Look at verse 18. It said, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God created the paradise of Eden, placed man in it, provided a lush garden to sustain him and give him a purpose. God evaluated creation and came to an important conclusion. It's not good for man to be alone. We were created to fellowship, to be with other people. That's part of the reason why children had such a hard time during COVID when schools were closed. That's why so many people here and around the world rebelled against the the quarantines and all that stuff. Because we're naturally created by God to be with people. That's why our friends in the nursing homes are having such a hard time. Because God made them to be with people, with their family, with their friends. That's why we struggled so much during COVID. We have an innate need to connect spiritually, intellectually, and emotionally with other people. That's how God made us. That's why in the garden, God looked at Adam in this palatial paradise where where Adam had everything he could want. Why God looked at that and said, hmm, it's not good. It's not good. He shouldn't be alone. He needs other people. God's solution to Adam's aloneness is to make him a helper suitable for him. Moses' use of the word helper is indicates an important role that Eve will fulfill as his wife. That word helper in Hebrew is ezer, ezer, and it means someone who offers a sense of aid and support. Let me tell you about what Matthew says about this. It says, In the case of the biblical model, the helper is an indispensable partner required to achieve the divine commission. Helper, as we have seen from its Old Testament usage, means the woman will play an integral part, in this case, in human survival and success. What the man lacks, the woman accomplishes. As Paul said concisely, the man was not made for the woman, but the woman for the man, 1 Corinthians 11.9. 9. 
The woman makes it possible for the man to achieve the blessing that he otherwise could not have done alone. And obviously, the woman cannot achieve it apart from the man. So the Bible offers a clear description of the biblical roles that men and women fulfill within the family and in society. I spoke about this a while back. Let me give you just a brief kind of conclusion about our roles. Men and women are um, equally important and valued by the Lord. We all have a place in the family of God. Both genders have a role to play, and these roles are an integral part of God's plan for creation and for his church. But the roles are not the same. This biblical worldview is unacceptable in pop culture. So you start telling your friends about it, they're not going to like it, but it is what it is. God designed us, he designed the world, and he designed the family and the church. And so we're going to do what God tells us to do. So God looked over all creation. He brought the animals in front of Adam, and he allowed Adam to name them. But Adam's need for an intimate connection with another person remained unmet. Look at verse 19. It said, Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So none of the creatures that God created could be the suitable helper for Adam. I was surprised. Not even the canine? I mean, after all, the dog is what? Man's best friend, but not suitable to fulfill the role of fellowship that the man needed. So verse 21, the Lord caused, Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. This part of the text shows us something very important. The woman was not just an afterthought, but a special creation in the eyes of God. God himself surgically operated on Adam and fashioned Eve and breathed the breath of life into her. The building block of the woman is the man's rib. So God created the woman while Adam was sleeping. And next he brings the woman to Adam. And listen to his response in verse 23. The man says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, when we read that text in the English, it sounds like really formal, right? Hi, he's... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I, I feel like that person had an English accent when they said that. But the words that Adam said in that text, and, and we properly, we did translate them appropriately here, but in the Hebrew, it's like, wow. He's looking at Eve like, Wow. Someone just like me. Imagine what he felt when he saw her. This beautiful woman that God brought to him. 
Imagine his excitement, his love. At last, after naming all the animals, at last, someone of my own kind. Someone that I'll have an intimate connection with. And then it continues in verse 34, or verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. At this point, God institutes the covenant of marriage. God intended for them to commit their lives to one another in perfect fellowship and to procreate. This is the model for male-female intimate relationships. Now, the marriage covenant between a male and a female, a man and a woman, has three steps that are identified here in this verse. To leave, to unite, and to publicly declare. To leave, unite, and publicly declare. First, to leave the parents. Now, this doesn't mean that they would necessarily leave the home of the father and mother. That's common here. But in Hebrew culture, uh, they would actually, the woman would leave her family and go live with the man in the father's house. But there's something bigger here that goes on. The man and the woman would leave their father and mother and they become a new family unit. This means that their marriage relationship takes precedence or priority over all other relationships. Their allegiance is now to one another. They, of course, were called by God to care for their parents and to be a part of a family, and that's not what it's talking about. What it is talking about is they leave that family relationship as a son and a daughter, and they become a husband and a wife. And they unite with the spouse the man and the woman become one family, totally dependent and responsible to one another. They're joined. That's what it means in that text when it says joined uh, to, uh, and become one flesh. They're joined emotionally, physically, through intimacy, and spiritually in a very unique, lifelong connection. And then they make a public declaration Marriage is not a private matter. It requires each individual to declare their intention to leave their parents and to unite with their spouse. Each family and the community at large is responsible for holding them accountable for their decision to marry. That's important. And I still uh, teach, preach, and prepare couples to do those three things when they come to me for marriage counseling. That's God's covenant of marriage. And then finally in verse 25, it says, And the man and the woman were both naked and were unashamed. This transitional verse reminds us of the sinlessness and the shamelessness of Adam and Eve at this time. They lived in the clothes that God gave them. And there was nothing wrong with that. Now the Hebrew reader Looking, going back and reading this text would have been flabbergasted that Adam and Eve could be naked and unashamed because after the fall, it was shameful to be naked. In fact, God issues commands about covering up and not being naked, and that's a result of sin in the fall. But Adam and Eve were sinless, and so they had what God gave them, and that was okay. So let me just conclude with three things as we get to the end of this part of the text. God created us to work. And our work is an act of worship. Our work is good when we do things that honor God. 
So remember that when you're working, no matter what you're doing, whether you have or you're still working and have a job, you could be retired and doing other types of work, whatever your work, it's a blessing from God and it honors Him and it can be an act of worship. Number two, God created man and woman and both genders are special, unique, and designed by God to fulfill specific roles. Finally, third, God designed the covenant of marriage, not man. Our government, pop culture, and the people in our community do not get to decide who can and cannot be married and what's appropriate. The Word of God has declared, because of God's covenant and command, that a marriage is between a man and a woman for life. And we, the church, need to do everything we can to encourage godly marriages.